Yo, partnership alert, partnership alert, partnership alert. Living Corporate has a partnership with LinkedIn Learning, an American massive open online course provider that provides video courses taught by industry experts across a wide array of subjects. Now, the partnership is because Living Corporate has courses on LinkedIn Learning focused on diversity, equity, inclusion for leaders, career professionals, and anyone really looking to upskill themselves and be better allies. So make sure you check out our courses on LinkedIn Learning by clicking the link in the show notes. And let's just say you don't want to do that. You go to LinkedIn Learning on LinkedIn, search Living Corporate. We'll be right there. All right. Peace. What's up, y'all? It's Zach with Living Corporate. I have come on here several times and told you before, over and over and over, that our biggest superpower is going to always be our voice. All right. So, like, what do I mean by that? What I mean is we have this belief that, like, if we, like, work really hard or make a really nice PowerPoint presentation or if we, you know, come together for some grand gesture, um, if we you know, are able to get that really exclusive seat in this really exclusive white space. If we sacrifice and we like, you know, sacrifice parts of our own dignity and identity to be, you know, really like hailed in white spaces that then we'll have the power to then really enact change for people that look like us. Like I believe that that argument not only is selfish and like just disingenuous because I don't believe that's what people really be doing. But also, it's just not true. Like we've seen in the history of like civil rights, like in a wide array of spaces, right? We've seen that the biggest power that folks have is by leveraging their voice, right? And working as a collective and using their voice by demonstrating solidarity in practical, actual ways to work and mobilize together and speak a thing that is true, right? To name a thing, to name a thing, a thing, right? That's how change is realized for black and brown people, especially in corporate context. There's a quote and it goes something like, you know, individually we beg, collectively, we negotiate, right? Individually, we beg. Collectively, we negotiate. And I think it's especially in this culture. And I read something when I was when we talked, we uh, we had a podcast on King's holiday in January about this nature of individualism and um, materialism that has us so wrapped up in our own journeys where all of us are the stars in our own movies. All of us are caught up in making sure how we look, making sure that we have the bag, making sure that we look right, making sure that we are acclaimed, making sure that we have um, all of the accolades that we want. It's, it's all about us individual, me, 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 me. That is not a sustainable way for us to survive, right? Like ironically and overly focused on yourself, you're going to look up and realize you're the only person around. And maybe for some of y'all, that's what you want, right? But like the truth is there's no power in that. People are happy to pick out a couple of token people because they know that you're not going to actually try to create uplift for anybody else. Like they look out, they, they're going to make sure you get a, a spot. They're going to make sure you get a seat. But our superpower is in coming together and leveraging our voices and raising our voices and speaking on things that need to be spoken on. All right. So as we look at like all of the different issues regarding um, inequity at work, just like 
just piss poor treatment by white majority leadership as we look at inequitable pay, as we look at high turnover rates, as we look at, um, frankly, like causes of and issues of sexual assault and abuse, as we look at all sorts of just harmful issues that happen at work. Like we have a power. We have our power and that power is our voice. And so I'm really excited about the guest we have today, Madison Butler. Madison Butler, if you don't know, she's like a guest writer for Living Corporate. She's written, frankly, several pieces um, for us. And I don't even say she's a guest writer. She's just a writer. She's just a writer for Living Corporate. Um, um, And I'm thankful for her. I'm thankful for her life. I'm thankful for her light. We talk a little bit about all the things that she has going on. And the one thing I hope that folks get from this is like the fact of her being willing to leverage and use her voice. And so we're going to tap in with Tristan. We're going to come back and you're going to hear this conversation with Madison Butler. See you in a minute. What's going on, Living Corporate? It's Tristan, and I want to thank you for tapping back in with me as I provide some tips and advice for professionals. This week, let's talk about how to stand out while working remotely. Some of us have been working remotely for a while, and some of us are just settling into working from home due to COVID-19. Either way, it can be challenging to figure out how to stand out and advance in your career when you're not actually in the office. I have over seven years of experience working remotely for Fortune 500 companies. When I first started, I had to learn how to adapt to ensure I could still get recognition and promotions to continue advancing my career. Here are my top three recommendations to continue making forward progress in your career. First, show up and be present. While I know it can be easier only to use audio for meetings, I'd suggest turning your camera on. You want your boss, your team, and others you work with to get as much face-to-face interaction with you as possible to mimic how it would be in the office. This helps people attach a face to the name and allows you to develop better connections. Also, make sure to pay attention to how you are presenting on screen. From staging your work area and getting dressed to being mindful of facial expressions and body language, it all plays into your professional brand as a remote employee. Second, take the time to reach out to your team, boss, and peers. When working remotely, building personal relationships is incredibly important. The goal is to develop fans, advocates, and sponsors, people who will sing your praises in rooms and meetings you're not in. They can help raise your profile and even help you get to the next level in your career. Lastly, you have to become your own biggest advocate by mastering the art of self-promotion. Most of us have been taught not to talk about ourselves, but promoting yourself at work is essential to career growth and recognition. Make sure you're documenting and sharing wins to boost visibility and your professional brand. You can also utilize that information during your performance reviews to make a case for raises and promotions. Thanks for tapping in with me this week. I look forward to speaking with you next week. This tip was brought to you by Tristan of Layfield Resume Consulting. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Layfield Resume, or connect with me, Tristan Layfield, on LinkedIn. Madison, what's going on? Hello, how are you? I'm doing great. <laughs> you know, it's funny. And see, this goes back to kind of like what you and I've been talking about off mic, but I'm really excited about later this spring, which folks will learn about later. It's funny how people be like, yo, you know who you should really be working with? Madison. Y'all would be great. And I'm like, yo, Madison's written like <laughs> several pieces for us. She's like 
talks about us in the newsletter. She promotes us like, yeah. uh, so it's like, okay, we got to figure out a way to get the word out better. Anyway, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. How are you doing? How's your day? Day is good. Day is good. You know, I think that, um, in Houston, it's kind of chilly right now. Like it's like, well, and I mean, everything's relative, right? But like, um, you know, it's like in the fifties, right? And that's like kind of, and it's wind and it's windy. So, you know, I got to pull out my fur um, and really just take care of myself. No, um, I'm good. I'm good. Um, you know, it's interesting. I've known I've known of you for a while. And then, I, you know, of course, we've gotten to know each other more over the past, I'd say, 18 months or so, maybe a little longer. I don't know. Um, but as I as I think about like you as a as a brand, I wonder, like, do you feel like you recognize like the voice you have on LinkedIn? Like, talk to me about like your journey in just like your social presence and like and like how you've arrived to where you are today. On accident, mostly. Um, so for me, I never like intended to have, I guess, what I would call now a brand. Um, it really happened by happy accident, I suppose. But when I first joined the startup scene, I was a recruiter and I really realized that like things were so broken in recruiting. And I started kind of talking about them out loud. And ironically, the person who was like, why are you so tame on LinkedIn comparatively to this person I see every day was a white guy that I worked for. He and I are still very close, but he had a LinkedIn brand that now looks, it looks very similar to mine, mm. um, not in content, but in followers. And I remember the first time he interviewed me and he was like, how many followers do you have on LinkedIn? And I was like, I don't know, like 12. And he was like, well, you're a recruiter. Why wouldn't you want to have a brand there? So mm. when you post a job, you. Yeah, yeah. Now mine is not a recruiter anymore, but that really resonated with me then. And so when I originally got on LinkedIn, it felt really uncomfortable to be on there and like be talking about stuff that wasn't just like a like or a comment. And so I really had to challenge myself. I basically told myself I would connect with 10 new people a day. I would write content once or twice a week. I would engage with people who had content content that was similar to mine or that I was interested in, but I never expected it to like blow up. And I remember when I started writing like what I consider my spicier content, um, the things, the thing I always say is like, I used to do that thing where when you send like a spicy text message, you like throw your phone and you go like clean, um, I would, like write my content, shut my laptop and like go wash a dish because I would get so nervous about the feedback or if it would do well, or like if people would think I was weird. Cause I was talking about this stuff on LinkedIn. Yeah. And now obviously it's like a very normal part of my life. I think the thing that people don't realize is oftentimes people are always like, oh my God, how long does it take you to write your content? Or like, then there's the trolls who are like, how do you have a job? You spend all your time on LinkedIn writing things. <laughs> I spent like no more than eight minutes on my content. And that includes designing like an image on Canva. But it's it's easy, but it's easy for folks to like, like for people who can't imagine that, like that, cause that, it's a certain level of creativity that's involved in that too, right? And so like, it's hard for people who don't maybe have those muscles as developed to like, really conceive that man you're on here less than 10 minutes it like you look because you look at the impact of what you write and the reactions that it gets um and then you look at like you know one would just certain people would assume oh this had to have take, taken her a few hours to like really put all this together um speaking of which like how would you categorize the content that you write that you that you post on on linkedin and on socials in general 
Well, so I guess if you had to think about where I categorize myself in the world of work is at the end of the day, like I'm a people practitioner and the thing that I care about at the core of everything I do is how people feel when they experience work. And so for me, that's really what I center my content around is because I feel like there's a ton of privilege in having the platform I have and having the engagement that I have and having the following that I have. And so I want to say the thing that no one says at work because it puts them at risk. And the thing that as a manager, you may never know because it's not a life that you navigate. And so trying to create some real conversation for people to have that aha moment without someone else having to basically uncover their own trauma. If I can be a voice for someone who doesn't have one, that's what my platform is intended for, is to make sure that people know that they're not only alone, they're not alone in their journey, but that there is someone who cares about how they're navigating work. Yeah, I love that. You know, it's something about, it's interesting because like, I find your posts incredible, like in, in terms of like how much reaction they garner. <laughs> and, <laughs> and and I and I appreciate like the frankness within you speak as you talk about like these matters, particularly around historically marginalized groups. You know, you and I have kind of talked around this a little bit offline. I'm curious, but I've never asked like because I really want to get like a, a honest opinion like like on the on air is like I feel like there's this growing brand of people who are on socials who say really like provocative things about diversity, equity, inclusion or whatever, however you want to categorize it. But like when you actually like peel back the layers and ask them about like, okay, what are some actual meaningful ways to to create impact like beyond you writing on LinkedIn or whatever, like they rarely have like meaningful, like they don't, it's, it's rare that they have meaningful contributions, right? Like some of these people are not even like in like a DEI space. Like they've never even, they're just talking. I'm curious, like, do you sense that, have you observed that? Yes. I, so, you know, I've been writing my content now since late 2017, early 2018. So I have had the privilege of watching where LinkedIn has gone, where people have come from. And I feel like really 2020 people wanted to cash in on the DEI space because suddenly everyone cared about it. Suddenly it was all in the news. Suddenly it was all everyone could talk about from a buzzword perspective. And I have seen lots of harmful people try to exist in this space simply for profit. We have seen white women really dive into this space, despite the fact that I can tell you if I think that if your DEI is being led by a white woman, you're most likely doing it wrong. And that's not because I don't think white women should be involved in the work. I just don't think they should be the ones leading it. Yeah. Sorry. And so we see a lot of one of the one of the caveats of DEI work that actually bothers me the most. And you see it very often is centering the work on how to fix racists and homophobes and transphobes rather than dismantling the systems that allow them to thrive. Thinking about this from an individual level doesn't actually work. It's systemic. And so if you're not focusing on the system and you're just focusing on how you can heal the racist and fix the oppressor, that doesn't actually do anyone good and it still just centers oppression and white supremacy. But I feel like that is actually a take that a lot of people enter with because it's the safest one. It's someone that gets you into organizations. They want warm, fluffy conversations around DEI. They don't want to do the hard stuff. They don't want to have the uncomfortable conversations, the conversations that make them feel shame and guilt and recognize their relationship with privilege. They want to have like the, okay, I have to be a nice person. Let me go to a sensitivity training. 
And I can tell you that's not what dismantles systems. Again, it allows the oppressor to still hold power in the room. It's interesting because like you talk about like people like like um I agree with you, right? Of course, like there's a folks that want something comfortable that doesn't challenge them. I also feel like there's this like other group that really does I don't know, I don't want to say it's like BDSM. It feels like somebody's personal kink of like they do like being individualized and told that they're the problem. And then they go, yeah, I do have privilege. And then like, we all applaud them. I feel like that's a, that's a heavy space too. Right. So like, so people like it, they, they want to, they want it. They don't mind if it's rough, quote unquote, but again, like as long as it's not actually getting too complex or like really gets to the solution, it seems like some folks really like that. Like they get off on like being told that they're a problem and that they need to change. They need to recognize their privilege. And it's like, I don't know, like to your point, like I, I've, I think I'm, I am, um, I'm just, I'm disillusioned with that. Like, I think I'm over, I'm, I'm convinced that that is not fixing anything. Yep. A hundred percent. And I, I even think sometimes with my following and like with some of the engagement I get, I'm like convinced, like some, it's some of these people's kinks to get dragged by me. Yeah. Like that's what they they were looking for that. Yeah, um, so. And it's really weird. So weird. But at the same time, I'm, and what you're saying is that's what I'm really tired of. I'm tired of centering the guilt and the like, look at me, I'm a good white person. Um, right. I, I just don't want to do that anymore. And I feel like that's a lot of, again, what goes on in this space. I think like, and so then the other piece, as we like, as we continue to just kind of talk a bit about it, it's like, you know, like your own identity, right? Like you're very... Um, you're very transparent and open and like vulnerable and like just broad, like letting folks know who you are. Right. And like all of, and and I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure we don't know all of who Madison Butler is, but we, but you've shared several dimensions of yourself. Um, and I'm curious, like, do you have, I feel as if like, when we talk about intersectionality, like this idea, like of us all, like each of us being multiple things simultaneously, like, I'm curious, like, how have you navigated your own identity, like in some of these spaces? Um, and like, where have you felt, um, even if only at times, like a bit of like the odd girl out or odd person out, excuse me. Um, that's actually a really interesting question. So I don't necessarily know if I ever feel like the odd person out, but I think that actually has to do with the fact that I always felt like the odd person out growing up. It's one of the things that I, I do try to talk about pretty often on LinkedIn because I think it's a, a feeling and an experience that isn't talked about enough is the concept of like internalized anti-Blackness as a Black woman. And I tried so hard to run from my Blackness for so much of my life that I always felt like the odd person out because I was trying so hard to fit into whiteness and I just couldn't do it. Like I couldn't get there. And I spent a lot of time feeling like I just didn't fit in no matter how hard I tried, no matter how straight my hair was or how much I sounded like this when I talked instead of my real voice. And so now I never really feel like the odd person out as much as I'm really in tune with what spaces aren't meant for me and what people aren't meant for me and what groups aren't meant for me. Um, a really hard lesson I've learned, not only since writing content, but even just coming from this space where I unpacked all of that stuff um, is understanding that not everyone is going to like me. Not everyone's going to enjoy my content. I'm not going to be supported by everyone. I'm not going to be supported by people I look up to. Not everyone you're rooting for is rooting for you. 
And that's a really hard lesson to come to terms with, but it has really allowed me to never feel like I'm out of place because I'm not. If I'm somewhere, it's because I'm supposed to be there. I love that. Yeah, 100%. Um, now, somebody, not you, was having a conversation with somebody and they were like, I just feel like I'm not doing enough. And I was like, huh? What do you mean? Um, now, nah, of course, I'm joking. I'm talking about you. You and I've talked off mic about you feeling like you weren't doing enough. And I'm going to tell you, I find it really incredible how you do manage all of the things you do, right? Like, let's talk a little bit about like your current uh, nine to five, we'll call it. Um, like, talk to me about like that, the role that you're in now and like kind of like what was the impetus of, of joining? And then, you know, like, what are you just most happy and proud about? Yeah, so currently I am the VP of People and Impact at Grav. We are in the cannabis space. I joined exactly a year ago. I just had my year review. And I joined because it was the first time that I felt so aligned with the person I was going to report to. Mm. And this is exactly the feedback I gave him in my review because he asked for like critical feedback. And I was like, to be quite honest, it's really empowering to report to not only the CEO, but report to a CEO who lets me just be. Yeah, yeah. He lets me challenge him. He lets me get upset. He lets me say no. Um, and that's been an incredibly different experience for me. And I feel very, very lucky to be in a position where I fully trust the person I work for. And I joined because I have run in the tech startup scene for quite some time. And I wanted to move into a space where I could have some serious impact. And I fully recognize that cannabis is an important industry it is an industry that has the ability to help close the wealth gap it has the ability to widen the wealth gap and tech was the same way but tech was not handled responsibly no one thought about who was at the table before everyone rushed in and vc ate up everything that tech is and now we look back and we're like damn one percent of funding goes to black people one percent of funding goes to women one percent of funding goes to lgbtq and the west is rest is basically straight white men how could we have stopped that from being the outcome? And of course, hindsight is 2020, but that's a genie you can't put back in the bottle. And so when I think about cannabis, cannabis is at the same precipice right now, where when it becomes federally legal, it's going to be something that everyone just like rushes into, not because they care about it or they believe in it or they care about social justice reform they see the dollar signs. Yeah. And so how can I help have some impact on not only black owned businesses in this space, but just small owned businesses, family owned businesses, businesses that aren't intended to be a conglomerate, businesses that don't want to be a conglomerate. How do you protect their wealth and their space at this table? And so that was one of the really big things for me in joining this is it's not that I am like super well-versed in cannabis, although I guess I am getting there now, but it was really for me about how can I go into a space and have true impact? Because yes, I would love to say that I have impact at tech, but it's at the micro level, it's at the individual level, it's at the organizational level. But I think there's still time and space to have impact on the industry level here in cannabis. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an exciting season. I've, it's very frustrating like when you see like all of these I mean, just build it's a you know, it's a billion plus it's a billion dollar industry. And yet there's still black and brown folks, you know, in jail for the, you know, for the rest of their lives, or even for five, six years, shoot, a couple months, period. They're in jail for for uh for the same thing that's making somebody else, you know, millions a year, right? 
And so, you know, as we think about that, like, I'm curious, I'm curious, like, can you talk a little bit more about, like, the work that you're doing outside of your nine to five? Who? Uh, which part? Um, so me. outside of my nine to five, <laughs> um, I am a public speaker. I have my own consultancy. It's called Blue Haired Unicorn. Um, and so I do go into organizations at the individual level and help them lay strategy on what it means to scale equitably. Um, which is actually, it's a trick because what you need in order to scale equitably is you need your people to actually do the self-work. It's not like I can't come in and like fix it for you. They're all convinced you can though. And so I do that outside of my nine to five. I also launched Black Speakers Collection in mid-December. Again, happy accident that went very well. Um, and I'm writing a book. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Now, um, I want the folks who feel as if Madison isn't doing enough, I want you to make yourselves known. Email me at livingcorporate at gmail.com and I'll give you a firm talking to. Madison, you're doing quite a bit. Okay. Um, so let's 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 talk a little bit about like the, the story of the Black Speakers Collection and then like just like how that's grown, what that's turned into. Like get like start me at the beginning. So at the beginning, I, like I said, I'm a public speaker and something that I know happens every single year is that people wait until January 27th to be like, oh my God, I need a Black History Month. Every time. Despite that, like Black History Month is not Thanksgiving. It doesn't fall on like a different day every year. Um, it literally falls at the same time every year. And I made a post that was like, hey, remember like Black History Month is coming. And if you haven't booked your speaker, you're probably gonna be booking for 2023 now. But also remember, you can book us for months outside of February and to talk about things that aren't DEI. And so then at the end of my post, I was like, hey, if you're a Black speaker, I would love to know what you talk about and where people can reach you. And then I realized, I was like, oh my God, this is really good data. Like, it would be a shame if I just let this die in my comment section. And so I put it in an Excel spreadsheet because I'm not super technical. <laughs> um, and then someone reached out to me on Twitter and they were like, hey, I can turn this into like a live landing page. And so we turned it into a live landing page. I had 28 speakers, which I was like super impressed with. I was like over the moon. I thought that was the coolest thing ever. And every day I checked, I was like, oh my God, we have a hundred. Oh my God, we have 300. And now it's been two months and I have over 2000 and I'm like, I'm, like I'm literally mind blown. And I'm but also not mind blown at the same time. I'm mind blown that it took off so quickly. I knew black speakers were out there. I knew that it was never a pipeline problem. I knew that it was, not only just a laziness problem, but again, that concept of, I don't want to be challenged. I don't want you to come up here and say things that make me uncomfortable. I don't want to pay you to say things that make me uncomfortable. Yeah. A hundred percent. I'm, I think I'm impressed at like just the power of that. Right. And then shout out to uh, Dr. Janice Gassimano. She featured you on in Forbes um, to talk a little bit more about like just the story and how that came to be. But yeah, I remember when you did and you did that little form in June and I, I think I signed up, but but it exploded right like very quickly like talk to me about like so i know we you have the black speakers and then you've also started something like the black ex like was it is it, is it is it black executives yeah um it was again as i as a recruiter um something i hear all the time is like well i just can't find black talent or i can't find a black executive and i was like okay well like you're not looking i know you're not looking and so i wanted to have another space that if you were struggling to find people, I needed to be able to like put that excuse to bed. I needed it to not exist. I need to be able to say, well, no, you're you're wrong and here's why. 
And so the more I think about what I want to come out of this is I want I want to have that answer for basically anything. If you tell me you can't find someone who's black in a certain industry, like I can just tell you you're wrong. You know, it's it's just powerful when I think about like the size of that group and the size of that community and all of the the ways that they can be supported and engaged like you know like talk to me about like what your dream is as you think about like this growing i mean again you started in december it's february i know it's probably going uh, it has to be growing a good bit every day like talk to me about like where you see this going a year from now so i think for me the most important part of this was giving people a sense of community um, like, I really do think the website is cool, but I really think the cooler part is that we have 500 people on a Slack channel who are cheering for one another, celebrating each other, sharing their wins, sharing their losses, and creating this level of transparency that I don't think has existed in the speaker world around your rates, what it means to show up, all of these things. Because one of the things, one of the questions I have on the form is, what is your rate? And they were so different across the board. And I realized that unless you have someone in your corner who tells you what you should be charging, you're like, yeah, $500, that sounds good. And that's what I felt when I started speaking. The only reason that my rates are what they are now is because someone had a hard conversation with me. And that was every time you undercharge, you basically set up the next black woman to be underpaid. And that really sat with me because my whole work is centered around equity and creating spaces for black women and black femmes and black queer people and black people to thrive. So I was like, oh my God, what am I doing? And so I raised my rates. But I realized if you don't have a person in your corner like that, you're going to undersell yourself. You're going to undercharge. You're going to believe that exposure is a form of payment because why wouldn't you? We're taught to believe that when white folks give us an opportunity, we should jump on it. We're conditioned to believe that. And we've had some really great conversations. We've had some great workshops just around what it means to own your personal brand, how to create a personal brand for yourself, what it means to charge your rate. And for me, that's really the important part here is that we're creating spaces where Black people and Black folks can have the power to stand up for themselves in an organization and be like, no, this is my rate. I'm not taking $500. I'm not taking your exposure as a form of payment. And here are my rates. Here is what I am worth. And either you can pay it or you're not going to, and that's fine. I love that. And you're absolutely, you know, it's, it blows my mind, like the brands that have reached out to me, especially after the murder of George Floyd. Uh, but before that, and certainly, you know, continuing after these brands would be big, like they like their market cap is like two, $3 billion. And they ask him, they talking about, well, we don't really have this in our budget. Yes. Yes. Some of the brands that have reached out to me, like, first off, your evaluation is Googleable, like, please know that. Right. And um, I can Google that. And so I had a company that their value, their valuation is like $8 billion. And they were like, we've got $700. And I was like, you, you sure? Yeah. Like, tell me what you spend on happy hours. Right. Right. And so what that tells me is this work isn't important to you. What is important to you is being able to say that, oh, well, we had a speaker, we had a workshop, we did this, we did that to boost your own, like, social clout. You don't give a shit about this work because if you did, you would understand why you're paying for it. It's just mind boggling. Like I've had, I've I've never get it's this shop and they were like, and they, and I said, um, not, you know, I was like, here's the, here's the number. And like, it wasn't like a crazy number. It was a reasonable number. I'll tell you the number off my, but it was a, it it was a fair number. And I thought, and they were, and in fact, I was like, well, here's, you know, here's, the range of what I typically 
you know, here's some ranges based on different variables. Here's some ranges. Mm-hmm. And then they came back and they were like, okay, well, yeah, we, um, you know, that's, that's a bit out of our budget. I was like, okay, well, what is your budget? Oh, well, uh, we don't, we don't, we don't know. And I was like, well, no, you have to know. Like, so what do we, what, what, what's the conversation? What are we talking about right now? It was so odd. And they were, yep. and they, and that, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Janice and I actually just, um, I guess LinkedIn is like testing this like feature that's kind of like Twitter spaces. And so Janice and I did a live on um, finding a black speaker. And that was one of my main things is like, have a budget before you reach out to people. Or <laughs> just be ready to give the number, right? Like, but I guess like, to your point, that's a budget. But like, because when you yeah, say, like have a number in your brain, have a number in your brain. Like when people like to say, to say, well, this is under my budget. And I say, okay, well, what is the budget? And then you say, I don't know like that, that. And so I'm going to tell you like, and this is where like, you know, um, the patriarchy and just like male ego and stuff come in. That made me mad. <laughs> so I just hung up. I was like, okay, Hey, when you're ready to provide a budget, when you know, when you've identified your budget, you email me. Okay. Click. You're better than me. I have a one cheater that has my rates and you can look at that before you schedule a call with me. And then to schedule a call with me, you have to pay for that too. And I will put it towards your fee if we end up booking, but I'm done having people like out here playing on my phone. Playing on my phone. That's, <laughs> that's what it is. <laughs> people be playing on my phone. Um, I really want to talk a little bit more about like, you know, you said something at the top of the interview. I was like, man, I really want to get to that. Um, you talked a little bit about like internalized white supremacy. Like, can you talk a little bit more about that and like what what that means, and then also like what that has what that meant for you and how you navigated that? Yeah. Um, so I, if you meet me, I just look black. However, I'm biracial. My mom is white. My dad is black. Uh, so I grew up in this like mindset of like I don't know where I fit in, and my parents were like very much like, "No, you're black," and I was like, "But are you sure? Are you sure that's the case here?" And I think part of it is I grew up in the 90s where Sesame Street was like very adamant that like color doesn't matter. And if we all just work hard and get along, we'll all end up in the same place. And I really believe that. And my parents really did try to do the best for me by sending me to private school, but private school was incredibly white. And I spent all this time being like, well, I'm not white enough to be white. So I'm just going to go with, I'm biracial. I'm mixed. Like I'm special which like I'm not. So for me, I spent a lot of time trying to just fit in and I never did. Um, My first boyfriend was white and I definitely got called the N-bomb by his like very rich family, which for me was like my first active like instance with racism. I now look back to lots of other times where I like brushed things off as a child that I was like, oh, that was definitely, that was race, that was racism. But I think for me, where it all came to a head was I, I went to boarding school for high school. I went to business school for college, all of which were like very male, white dominated spaces. But when I was in my early 20s, I started dating this guy. And I think we've all had this instance where we've dated someone who is bad for us. But I would take this like 1,200 steps further. And it was one of those instances where my parents like over and over were like, no, he is a bad person. What are you doing? But by the time I realized that I was in too deep, I was in too deep. And he was your classic narcissist where our relationship at the beginning was so perfect and I was the center of his world, la-di-da, la-di-da. 
he basically conned me into moving in with him, conned me into splitting a bank account with him. And basically I was financially trapped. So by the time that the physical and emotional abuse started, I had no way to get out. And as we got further on into our relationship, the attacks from him became more race centered. He became a violent racist and I say became, but he was definitely already a violent racist. He just played me. And I made the mistake of two and a half years into our relationship. I was like, yeah, we should totally move across the country together. We should totally move away from my entire support system. That feels like a good idea. So we moved to Houston, Texas. And it was like a light switch. Things were already fairly bad, but I always had the option of like, I could escape for a day. And for whatever reason, I always came back because he always found me, but I had nowhere to go in Texas. I had no family, I had no friends, I knew no one. And it was like the minute we got there, things just escalated. And mind you, this is also in the midst of Trump rising to Trump. It was it was in the beginning. It was during it wasn't after the election. It was when he had like announced his run and things just started like coming out of the woodwork. Like everyone all of a sudden felt emboldened in their crappy, racist, homophobic views. And I don't know why, but I, when we were there, I started recording things like on the down low, like of fights, of arguments, because I really needed to have like a if I go missing file, which sounds really scary to say and look back, but I needed people to know that like I didn't do this myself because I knew that would be what happened. He would say that I was missing, I did it myself, I was just sad, depressed, whatever. And don't get me wrong, I 100% had those thoughts when we were dating because it felt like taking my own life would at least not give him the pleasure of taking it. And I remember when I was turning 24, he, my birthday card that he gave me said, I hope you stay alive to see 25. I left him exactly one month before my 25th birthday. I waited till he was like out cheating essentially. Um, I packed everything I owned and by everything I owned, I mean enough clothes and my two dogs got a rental car, left the car that I had and drove 1900 miles back across the country to my house, um, to my parents and left literally everything. He, you know, made sure that I was terrified the entire time. He wiped my bank, my, the bank account. I had just gotten like a pretty hefty paycheck and he just wiped it. So I basically had to start my life from scratch. And I remember the day of the election, I shared one of those videos that I had saved and it was really him dropping the n-bomb repeatedly telling me that trump was going to send me back to africa and like all of these really vile things but i shared it on my facebook page basically to say like hey some people are voting for trump for this reason not because they care about republican policy or they're just you know financially conservative it's because they find solace and partnership in the way he talks about people and I just expected like my mom to see it. Like I knew that my mom was going to be like, what? I knew my parents knew, but I don't think they knew to what extent. Like they hadn't known about like my broken jaw or like all of the concussions or all of these things. And so I knew I was going to have to explain myself. There. But the next day someone was like, hey, have you seen this? And it was on some page that I vaguely remember was called Brown Girl Squad. And it had 40,000 views. And I was like, oh no, what did I do? And at the time, I will 100% say I definitely like identified as a Republican because I thought that's what I had to do in order to fit in with whiteness. Like, I'm pretty sure I voted for John Kasich in the primary. Like thinking about it now makes me like want to shower. Um, 
But I remember all of a sudden it was everywhere. The video was everywhere. Atlanta, Black Star, BET, like everything. And everyone just made up a story. Everyone made up a story based on the fact that I was Black. All of the comments were comments based on the fact that I was Black. I was turned into the villain because of course I must be with him for his money or whatever the reason. It was the first time that I was like, oh my God, no matter how hard I've tried to fit into whiteness, the only thing the world sees when they look at me is that I'm Black, Blackity Black. And it ended up being this like long drawn out saga of like viralness. I mean, my mom called me and was like, they're talking about you on XM radio, um, BET Bloom in New York to interview me. Like it was just a really weird period of time for me where I was still harboring a lot of anti-blackness. And I actually feel like in this, it was even heightened a bit because a lot of the horrible messages I was getting were from people in my own community, people who I didn't know, but told me I deserved it for dating a white guy, or I got all of the comments about like being a house girl and all of these things that made me feel really trapped in my own identity. Because I was like, oh my God, they see I'm black, but the black community hates me right now. How do you wrestle with that? And so it took me a really long time to unpack all of it. Um, It took a lot of hard conversations and a lot of crying (laughs) and a lot of just realization that if I'm going to show up, I need to show up as me. And it took me a long time to figure out what that meant. Who is me? Who am I? Um, What does it mean to exist as Madison Butler without all of the like show? Who was that? And so here we are today, Um, here I am. And it's been six years, we're still in court because Harris County is not doing me any favors. And it's it's been really interesting because even now he is still like the same con man and the same person. I think he thinks I'm the same person because he still shows up to court in all clothes I bought. He will stare at me like I am the only thing in the entire room, despite the fact that we are in court for revenge porn. Like he must forget that that's why we're there. And he told the judge, like, I just, I love her. I would have never done that. She left me for another man. And, you know, for me, it's like, I look back and it almost seems like it's someone else's life because I can't imagine that being me right now. But I was young. I was a senior in college and naivety got the best of me. But I look back and I really think how many times did I have the thought like, this is it. Like, this is going to be my last conscious thought. And I have to be okay with that. And looking back now, it's really weird to think about I had all of these times where I thought I wasn't going to get to have more life. And so I don't take that for granted now, but I also understand how dangerous and how scary it can be to be a Black woman. Because every time I called the cops in Houston, they didn't do a damn thing. On my way home, my 1900 mile one time trek, I didn't stop. I didn't stay overnight anywhere. I drove 36 hours straight with two dogs. I got pulled over by a cop in Alabama. And what did he do? He came to my car with his gun out. And so I realized that it is incredibly dangerous to be a Black woman existing in America, regardless of how far I've taken myself away from my abuser. Abusers don't just come in the form of partners. And that also has been a really hard lesson to learn in the journey of unpacking all of this. I just, one, I'm just so humbled by you sharing your story. There's so much there. Um, And even like, 
even like the the words you said, the unpacking, like you had there were things you had to address within yourself, and then like you know, like the 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 deinvestment, the divestment that you had to go through from whiteness, like all that consciousness, like. I'm curious, like, does that give you an additional level of like empathy as you see other um, other folks, other black people and brown people who are who have who who internalize whiteness? A hundred percent. I think it's one of the things that people ask me when they bring up Candace Owens, because at the end of the day, Candace Owens isn't a isn't the problem. She's the outcome of the problem. Yeah. And I do have an immense amount of empathy because even now people will dig through my Facebook posts and they'll be like, look at this thing you said in 2014. How are you going to explain this? I'm at a point where like, I'm not going to explain 2014 me to anybody. I've been extremely honest about my past. And the, the one thing I recognize is that hurt people hurt people. And I did not realize how hurt I was until I was unpacking all of this. And I wasn't just hurt by that one person. I was hurt by a lifetime of trauma that I decided was normal. I decided that every racial experience I had must have been because I did something wrong or they just don't like me. I never unpacked what that was. And then I also grew up in the church and I had a bunch of religious trauma to unpack. And so I do have a great amount of empathy because I really understand that hurt people hurt people. And white supremacy is a hell of a habit to quit because it feels like safety. Mm. And you don't realize it's actually the thing that's harming you. Ooh, Madison, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. You know, like I could keep you here all day. Um, I want to give you one last space to plug, uh, to plug your, your organizations and just anything else you want to talk about. Your floor is yours. Oh gosh. Um, I guess, you know, if you need a black speaker, I am super happy to help you help you find one. My goal is to make sure that we see more black folks, not only on stage, but paid for their knowledge, their IP, their skill set. And if you tell me you can't find a black speaker, I'm going to tell you you're wrong. If you have speaker panels or conferences or whatever at your organization and you look around and it's all white, I'm telling you at this point in time, it is intentional. I just saw a post on LinkedIn the other day for a women in tech thing. And it was literally just like a carbon copy of the same white woman in different hats. <laughs> and it doesn't have to be that way. Life should look different from your life sometimes. It's okay to hear different perspectives and you should hear different perspectives. It's okay. If, it's, if it makes you uncomfortable, one of the things I say before every workshop I start, if you feel uncomfortable, I really encourage you to sit with that right now because that's what it took for me to get to a point of understanding is I had to sit with being uncomfortable. I had to sit with guilt. I had to sit with shame. And those are all things we feel when we think about our relationship to privilege. And so if you're feeling uncomfortable, that's half of the journey. Now I encourage you to actually sit with it and feel it and understand why you feel uncomfortable. Mm, bars. Madison, thank you so much. I'm excited to know you, excited to, to, uh, for you to know me. You know what I'm saying? I'm honored at both of those things. And, um, you got to come back soon. Listen, I'm I'm here. Saturday podcast times are, are the best times. <laughs> I haven't thought about anything work related, so I really feel like I was like peak Madison right now. I didn't like have my HR hat on anymore, which is great. <laughs> um, so yeah, whenever you want to invite me back, I'm here for it. And I super appreciate you having me. No problem. Peace.
and we're back yo again shout out to madison shout out to the black speakers collection shout out to the, the black executive collection excited to continue to just see that community grow um, the application for a like captive audience of black and brown leaders executives folks who are really uh, prioritizing um, being available to speak um, one, not only it empowers that group, but also helps to further uh, eliminate or challenge the excuse of pipeline or availability. Um, the last thing I'll say is that um, it's important to pay black and brown speakers all the time, not just when it's Black History Month or Women's History Month or Pride or some special event. But anytime you ask for a person's time, particularly if they are um, a representation uh, or they represent a historically excluded group, it's important that you pay them, right? It's exploitative for you not. You're going to take that content and you're going to leverage it for some internal programming, which is going to drive employee engagement, which then supports dollars and revenue in some, you know, um, tertiary way. Or you're going to leverage that content for your own external marketing and brand, which directly drives your revenue and value. So for you to not pay, uh, folks to to lend their brand and their their credibility to you because that's what it is um, you're exploiting them right it's racist strong so stop doing that pay your speakers <laughs> and again yo much love to madison listen we're going to continue with content um, i'm really excited about the the things that are coming down the pipeline for uh Living corporate, as I think about like the this summer, this early, frankly, this spring, I mean, the announcement that we have cooking up, like you're gonna want to be paying attention. So if you're not subscribed already, make sure you subscribe to Living Corporate. You can get weekly updates. You can subscribe through our LinkedIn. You can subscribe through our Twitter. You can subscribe through our just our regular flat newsletter. We have plenty of ways for you to stay plugged in. But it's important. It would behoove you. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, behoove. I said it behoove. It would behoove you to plug in. All right, tap in. Shout out to Tristan. All right, y'all. Till next time. I will catch you later. This has been Zach with Living Corporate. Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.